good morning, everybody. How are we today? Hey, let, uh, let me first just acknowledge something. Uh, not only do we have incredibly talented musicians, but an incredible, uh, incredibly faithful group of people that serve in this way. So thankful this morning. And then also our folks uh, upstairs running the slides, running the sound. Um, we just have great people and uh, not, yeah, there you go. I'm not sure that we acknowledge that uh, enough because these folks um, serve really, really well. So uh, both of us up here today, uh, it's a very exciting morning. We've actually been talking about this Sunday for the last couple of weeks um, because we, the two of us, have been pretty excited about this Sunday. Not that we're not excited about every Sunday, but this one specifically. Um, we've been excited about it and we think that it's going to really help kind of kick off our fall. We are beginning a new fall series, um, kind of looking at the elements around new community. What are the things that make us, us? And um, we wanted to begin this morning with a scripture, a scripture that we believe kind of captures the essence of what we're planning to speak about this morning. Lamentations 3, 21 through 26, I believe it'll be up right here to my left, it says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We're going to make a bold statement to begin this morning. It is only by God's grace and faithfulness that we are here this morning. After a year of a pandemic that shut us down from corporately meeting, uh, there is really only one reason that we are still here and that we still, uh, frankly, have jobs, <laughs> that our community is still able to worship together, and that is by the grace and the faithfulness of the Lord. And in fact, we've said this a number of times, but if uh, you go back to the end of 2019 and you sit any of our staff down or our elder team down and said, hey, here's a proposition for you, play out this scenario. You're mandated, under mandated closure for a year, and you cannot meet corporately as a church. What do you think happens after a year? I think we would have all said, yeah, we just, uh, we burn the place down. It's done. <laughs> There's no way to come back from that. And yet, by God's faithfulness, by God's grace, we are still here. Now, I say that as kind of uh, set this morning up, but I do think, um, I think that it's necessary in moments like this that we acknowledge that we have all felt this disruption at varying levels. That we have all felt the isolation and the aloneness and the unsettledness and the unknown of the last year and a half at varying levels. And in many ways, it has been profound. Profound for us as individuals, profound for us as a community. And it is okay to feel those things. Absolutely, it is okay to feel those things. But we felt like, as we're kind of coming into this fall, that it might be helpful to remind us of who we are as a church community, 
who we are as a church community, especially in an unsettled time, especially coming out of the season that we've come out of, and in very much still are in this season, it might be really, really important to be reminded of our identity. So the message series in September is going to remind us of who we are as a church in the hopes that in be reminding of who we are corporately might be able to help center our thoughts on who we are individually as well. So before we can actually do that, though, we felt it necessary to look at where we have been. And so this morning is going to be a bit of a story time. That's why Russ and I are up here this morning. We're calling it an oral history of new community. And we're going to look at where we have been as a church community up until this morning so that we have a good grounding, kind of a good framework to then begin to explore the question of who we are. The uh, first 15 years of that history is going to go by really quick. Then we're going to slow down uh, in the second half. But new community as of this winter, kind of the end of December, moving into January, will be 30 years old. I know, we don't look it, but definitely 30 years old. And um, it, it started off as a small, scrappy group of uh, individuals that uh, were downtown in a shelter. And out of that shelter was birthed this community that wanted to center on this idea of being urban-focused and small group-driven. And what would it look like for us to be highly relational in nature? And uh, that group started there and then bounced around the city finding places to borrow, finding places to rent, and kind of made its way around almost all the corners of the city. And then in about 2005, it settled over at a space um, by Gonzaga University in the old, what was called the Rendezvous Room. Now, I don't know how many people realized that, but it was like club on the weekends and then church on Sunday. And um, the club didn't last very long after we moved in, which I don't understand completely why. But Rendezvous Room went away, new community, kind of grew up, took on the lease full time. Uh, and that was the quick overnight, 13-year overnight success story of new community. So new community at that point, 2005, uh, is growing, maturing, and is in that space over by what's now Northern Lights Brewery, Dry Fly Distillery, along the river. And at the time, the staff consisted of the following members. There's Brent and Tommy and Carly and Joelle and Rob and Robbie and Allie and Asher and John. And it was a robust staff. And then in August 2007, with the departure of Asher and John from the staff, a new community did a pastoral search, stumbled on me, then a... A worldwide yeah, search. Yes, yeah. for sure. Definitely scanned the globe and uh, found me, an equally bald 31-year-old um, person that moved from the Midwest with my family and uh, came here to Spokane, near nature, near perfect. At least that's the tagline back then. I don't exactly know what it is now. But the church had great plans, it had great dreams, it had an incredible staff, and within six months of me having arrived, uh, Rob, the founding pastor, told me he was considering stepping away from the church. This was not a part of the plan, 
was not a part of any conversation that our family had in coming to the church. And within one year of my arrival, it was announced that there would be some staffing changes. So in June of 2008, this is the staff at New Community, at least the full-time staff. That was it. And uh, what you just heard was a quick transition of 15 years of New Community. And uh, the reason we went through that quick is because at this point, we can really only speak from lived experience to the last 14 years. So in 2007 is when I came, and um, we began really to lean into this idea of describing the church this morning through three kind of lenses. We're going to look at identity, family, and communal discernment. So to begin us with identity, I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and answer the question that we're all thinking. What was going on in Russ's leadership to have such a mass exodus of staff, right? Not good. That's why we brought Kevin yeah. in, yeah. steady so, the ship. Uh, yeah, steady, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so Rob transitions at this point, Rob being the original uh, founder of the church, Rob transitions uh, and uh, kind of his entire portfolio at that point, work portfolio, lands on Russ's shoulders. And it is at that point, 2009, that uh, they don't do a worldwide search, but they do a very regional search and find a crazy guy out in Coeur d'Alene to come and move back to Spokane. And so I'm hired in 2009. And what's important about this, uh, not so much the how and why I was hired, but rather the idea of kind of uh, our entrepreneurial efforts or our apostolic efforts that have always been like bedrock to this community. Rob felt a call to go into a kind of worldwide church planting organization and really lean uh, into that, lend his efforts into that. And there has always been this sense within our community of sending people, of equipping people to go, not being a container where people come and land forever, but a place where people are equipped and trained and uh, led in such a way that they can go and do what God is calling them. It's really the way that we see best how do we extend the kingdom of God. And so um, two of us, and in fact, as I came onto staff at that point, there was two other staff members that were in uh, various roles, a gentleman named Ryan, another person named uh, Vaughn. They had already been here for about a year and they were being uh, in kind of trained and equipped to plant churches in Spokane. And so I came on, they'd been here for a year, and over the course of that next year, their training continued, and then on one grand Sunday, we launched out two additional church plants within the first year of my life. And in fact, mm -hmm. half of our church community yeah. on that Sunday exited with those two pastors. Uh, one of the churches was Emmaus up on the South Hill and then branches out north. But about 50% of us, our family, we said, go and God bless you and go and be with these leaders and be a further extension of the kingdom in this way. All told, uh, you may or may not know this, but New Community has planted six churches out of our church community, mostly regional. Coeur d'Alene is the farthest one away, but uh, all kind of regional churches here uh, in this place. 
it, but not only church plants, we've uh, had um, some pretty significant effort given to equi- or starting and launching several nonprofits as well. Uh, we've got a list of those, right? Yep. <clears throat> so here are the top three, our, uh, our three nonprofits that we've had a hand in. Global Neighborhood actually was born out of this place in what year that was happening when uh, you 2008 were... 2008 to 2009. So right as about mm-hmm. Russ came on, uh, 90 plus, which we still have uh, a very, very close partnership, has been born out of this place. In fact, Russ is uh, one of the founding members, still very, very involved there. Thrive Housing uh, is an initiative that was really born out of this place. But it doesn't even stop there because we've also had some business as mission ventures. And let's see, this was in 2012, I believe. I tend to have a a bit of a restless spirit just in my own heart. And so Grace, uh, my wife and I begin to ask the question, what's next for us? I was in a place, a church that really values, again, sending and equipping people to go. And I begin to think, man, what, what should I do? Like, what am I going to? And I began to kind of toss this idea around, what if I became a church planter? How great could that be, right? And it was at that point that two people that I respect very much, Russ being one of them, and another gentleman named Jeff Reinhardt, kind of sat me down and in very kind of tender, fatherly ways said, Kevin, you would be a horrific church planter. Do not do that at all. You will not be good at that. And that, honestly, is absolutely true and uh, has been some of the greatest advice that I have ever received. In that conversation, though, both people said, but there is something that God is calling you to do, and what might that be? And out of that kind of born this idea of business's mission and has really allowed me to lean into my kind of passions of fitness and health and start a business called uh, Dirt 2 Strength and Conditioning, which I've been able to uh, be a part of and help run for the last eight years now. So, One of the things that I think is really important about this idea of uh, kind of this identity that we look at as being a sending place is that when you are a church that has a value on sending, a value of equipping, a a value of um, sending leaders into your city to do things that they're called to do, there is a high turnover rate of your staff. And in many of these ways, we celebrate these things. These are wonderful things, but they're also gut-wrenching at the same point because you live with these people, you work with these people, you love these people, and then they kind of exit the nest. They leave and they go, and they do incredible things, and that's to be celebrated, but also can be some of the tougher parts of our job. But uh, all said, just from the time that you have been on staff, Mm -hmm. 2008, Uh, This has been a list of the folks that have been on our staff, including the ones that uh, Russ has already mentioned. We have had 34 people come in, land for various amounts of time, serve, care for, shepherd, pastor, give of their life, their talents, their resources in this way. Some of those folks are still on our staff. Uh, the Kind of the bottom on the right-hand uh, column are all still uh, currently on our staff. But this is a list of some of our closest friends and a list of people that have really made this place what it is in varying degrees, which leads me to my favorite part of the talk this morning, and it's that I get to officially announce that we have recently hired somebody new. So uh, is Jerusha... Jerusha is in the back. (laughs) We didn't plan this, obviously, because she would have been in here 
uh, Jerusha Emerson in the back. Um, when Julie officially announced that she was going to resign to take on her role at Lumen, again, kind of sending and equipping, she felt called into this new role. We began to pray for and ask God, who would you have come and fill that role? And resoundingly at, our, at the leadership level, our elder level, the first name that came to mind was Jerusha Emerson. She's been serving as an elder in our community now for the last six to nine months. She is uh, a person of deep, deep pastoral heart and care. <laughs> We're okay. <laughs> Just a popped balloon. Uh, but we, uh, we recognized very, very quickly that she would be the person uh, that is uniquely equipped and gifted to fill this role. So she uh, officially started on Monday. She's going to serve in the capacity of uh, our pastor of spiritual formation and connection. Um, so this list that we just looked at, uh, an incredibly diverse list of people in terms of their experience, their backgrounds, their theological understanding. But one of the things that is unique amongst all of these 35 people now is some sense of like community buy-in to some very, very distinct ministry philosophies that we believe new community has. Yeah, so a part of the history is a deep and rich, I think, DNA of some central things to faith, some of which I'll list quickly. Uh, we believe that the church is the people. It's not a building. We always refer to new community as the people and not the organization. That is a, a fundamental aspect of what we believe. We believe that the calling of every single one of us as followers of Jesus is a very high calling that demands a lot of commitment, and that the church is to be about the mission of God, that the relationships of the church collective are most central to what it means to live together, and they're essential to being the church. We believe that um, because of relationships and because of the priority on relationships and on small groups, that in light of that, there is low programming, right, and low production. You're not going to see a lot of uh, lights and smoke and mirrors on a Sunday morning because the effort and the time and the attention is going to other things. We believe in the importance of established small group connection. Uh, we often will say we prefer circles over rows. And even though we're sitting in rows this morning, the priority and the emphasis should be on what does it look like for us to circle up as small communities of a larger community and actually spend life together. Uh, we also believe that New Community has had for a long time this vision that pastors are pastors to the city, not just to the people that call New Community home. So that means you might find us out in, um, in the community meeting with other people, even outside of this community, for the good of not only this community, but for the good of the city. Uh, we believe that discipleship is of utmost importance and that new community is ascending church first and foremost. But on top of all of that foundation, I think it's important to acknowledge that there have been several fundamental shifts in philosophy over the last 14 years. And these are really, in some ways, deeper expressions of those held values that I just said. So one of those is a shift to shared leadership. And uh, this started in 2008, 2009. It also kind of uh, bore out its like full expression uh, with Kevin and myself. And that is really getting rid of the traditional format of most churches, which is very hierarchical in nature, which basically has a senior pastor and then the staff serves the senior pastor and then the church serves the staff. That is actually, in our opinion, the opposite of the way the church 
was ever created, and that is that the church, the people, are the ministers of the gospel, and it is the responsibility of the staff and the elders to love and submit to the leadership of Jesus and to love the community in a way that cares for and coaches the community to chase after Jesus. So all of that focus is centered on this belief, strong belief, that it is you and us collectively that is the body of Christ, and we are called to be ministers of the gospel in the city. That shift in perspective also uh, created a shift in what we called shared teaching. So part of why you see a variety of people speaking up front is really, I think, twofold in nature. Number one, too much of the Western church is captivated by the cult of personality. So the one person who speaks up front becomes the church, and people follow that person rather than following Jesus. We wanted nothing to do with that particular perspective. So shared teaching helps with that, but it also helps because the truth is if Kevin spoke every single week or I spoke every single week or Joseph or Jerusha or whoever, the church would only grow in the particular perspective of one person who becomes the voice with their passions and their interests. There are so many churches that are, I think, misformed not because they're chasing or pursuing wrong things, but when one voice keeps saying the same thing again and again, keeps beating the same drum over and over, then the church as a whole chases that instead of chasing the whole of the gospel. And so by having different voices with the same vision communicating what Christ is inviting us into, I think it is a more healthy way of expressing what it means to be the church. So not only have we shifted shared leadership, shared teaching, we also uh, started to really lean into this idea of being more, instead of declarative in our teaching, more discovery-oriented. And what I mean by that is we are all on a collective journey together of faith, and we are all sharing with each other in small group formats and in this format what it means to learn and grow and develop in our faith together. What we want to stray away from is the declarative kind of teaching that has historically been true in the church, which uh, espouses that one person goes and meets with Jesus on the mountain, kind of like Moses did, gets the commandments or the word, comes down and delivers it to the people, and does it in a way where they say, this is what you are to do, and this is what God said, which we don't think is maybe the fullest expression of what it means to follow Jesus and as pastors to lead people. So our goal is to lead and care and shepherd in a way where we collectively discover. So it's shared learning. Um, it is us not just producing answers, but more inviting questions and then really leaning into a mutual journey of pursuing Jesus. Now, one final thing that I want to mention before Kevin jumps back in, and that is this, that Another value that I think has been expressed even more over these last 14 years is uh, a sense of transparency or a vulnerability, of being willing to say we have faults, of being willing to say that the church has um, warts and all, like we've together have challenges. And the best way to describe that, I think, is through this identity or this perspective of family, that we view family as essential to the life of the church and with that often comes some harder conversations. In my family growing up, these types of conversations were called kitchen table. 
conversations. It's where you uh, call the kids up from the basement, you all sit around the kitchen table, and then you have to address whatever the thing is that you're addressing. In our family, we call them family conversations. In fact, we just had one right before school started, kind of a, uh, a bit of a, hey, everybody take a deep breath. We understand school is starting. We understand everybody has some uh, hesitancies, a little bit of unsettledness. Let's just take a deep breath. Let's be kind to one another. Let's remember how to do those things. We have these types of conversations often. And because we are a family, there have been a few of these conversations that we believe have really kind of marked our community in some pretty profound ways. Luckily, Russ has taken the lion's <laughs> share of these conversations. So uh, it, I, I'm going to actually let him kind of uh, talk us through a few of these stories. But I think it's important to remember that although, although these things can be painful at moments, um, it's by God's grace and faithfulness. If we go back to that verse, um, God has cared for us. God has mm -hmm. cared for this community. God has been with this community since day one. And although we have endured some painful things and have had some of these family conversations, the Spirit's power has been the most consistent force throughout all of them. So, uh, Russ, why don't you take it away with our first one? Yeah, we're going to walk through just a couple of these, and uh, even though at the time there was full transparency and full disclosure and nothing was hidden, even names, uh, this morning, out of honor to people, uh, I'm going to choose to withdraw names from this conversation because a moment in time or a particular event does not define who a person is, right? It just merely shapes us. And so the ongoing story and the ongoing story of grace in the lives of those individuals and in our lives uh, is essential. So, uh, one of the more um, beautiful and probably more challenging conversations started with a text message. Remember this particular staff member asked if they could meet and meet urgently. And um, that text messages like that usually don't end up in great places, it's just something I've learned over the years. And um, so, I showed up at the uh, old church space that we rented. And I could tell right away that the conversation was going to be a little bit heavy, and so uh, there were a lot of people officing in the building, and so we went and sat kind of along the river, and I remember like vividly the scene, like the wind blowing, the river flowing, and us sitting in that space. And uh, for a while, it was just silence. And then this staff member began to unpack uh, how they had gotten involved in a sexual relationship with a community member. And it was um, a humble and incredibly contrite confession, repentance, and that led to really one of the most beautiful gatherings, I think, in the history of New Community. Uh, this particular staff member and I sat up front, and on that given Sunday, they uh, confessed to the whole community about how they stepped outside of God's desire for a high sexual ethic. And uh, they received in that moment the forgiveness of the whole community. And it was this unbelievable picture of the gospel, of someone admitting weakness, of someone admitting a situation, receiving love back, no judgment, but complete acceptance. And, um, and often I tell people, if you, if you were to pick one of the top five times in the history of new community where you most clearly saw the spirit move or the true sense of the gospel it was that moment. 
Uh, there were tears. There, were, there was uh, so much embrace, and it was an incredible moment. I think what's really remarkable about that, too, is not just that morning, although that morning was uh, pretty profound in a lot of ways. It was then the following year as mm -hmm. that individual landed in a small group, and that small group came around that person and uh, for a year supported and cared for and walked through. And it wasn't just about this, uh, this remarkable grace and acceptance on a Sunday morning, but then it was the outworking of restoration and the outworking of reconciliation and a willingness by a smaller group of people to come around that individual and, uh, and support and love and, uh, and actually be a part of the process rather than saying, we forgive you and now God bless. It was, we forgive you, we love you, and let us help you become the whole version of yourself and restore the things that need to be restored. Yeah, and in fact, that staff member went on after a year of being in that group and went off to seminary and is doing some pretty incredible things. So this story kind of comes full circle. Um, another one in my office, we had just recently purchased this building, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and the bookkeeper asked to meet. And uh, the book So let me pause you here. Yeah. If you ever want to meet with us, don't just send a text that says, hey, we need to meet, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little, there's a little too much baggage that we yeah. both have now. So <laughs> you can send, hey, we need to meet, and then do like a thumbs up emoji or something. Then that kind of gives us a little bit of context of, oh, okay, this is going to be a fun one. <laughs> if it's a really bad one, just call us and say, hey, here's yeah. the situation. Yeah. Let's meet up. Leave a long, yeah. lengthy voicemail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, so this individual came in, and um, we had had some excellent conversations over the last little bit, having coffee together and, and um, kind of sharing about faith and life. And so I assumed the bookkeeper was coming in for another conversation similar to that, that would be like, these are the ways God's moving in my life and really exciting. And instead, this person came in, sat down across the table from me, had an envelope in their hand, and then slid it to me and said, don't open it yet. We'll talk about it first, then open it. I was like, man, that is another sign that maybe uh, don't do that when you meet with us. Anyhow, um, this staff member then, or this bookkeeper, proceeded to tell me that she had uh, falsified records. She had forged checks in my name, had lied to the staff and to the elders, and had stole money from the church, and then had gambled all of that money away. And uh, the paper in the envelope was a list of the amount of money and her plan at making restitution. Uh, in that moment, I prayed with her, hugged her, set up a time that we would meet again, uh, hoping that she would show up for that time. And then I called Kevin. And I remember um, I sat down first, and then I called him and asked him if he was sitting down. And uh, said, I'm going to walk you through something that neither of us uh, is really prepared for, so be prepared. And then um, kind of shared a brief version of our time together. And then it was all hands on deck. We uh, called staff in. We called elders in. We called an accountant. We started doing some, uh, as best we could, forensic accounting and investigation. And uh, it was... Uh, never, there's never a good time for this to happen. It is even worse if it's just right on the heels of purchasing this building. 
it was rough. Additionally, Russ left on vacation about two days later. Mm -hmm. We were bearing down Sunday. I was planning to go on sabbatical starting that Monday. And so it looks like a total inside job. All of your staff is like leaving right away. <clears throat> but um, I had the, the privilege of walking our community through on that Sunday, a family conversation uh, to acknowledge that $160,000 had been stolen from our church community. Um, and I distinctly remember sharing this message and everybody kind of like, you know, wide-eyed, like, oh my gosh, wh what are we going to do? Being able to say, God's grace, God's faithfulness, we are going to be okay. And I had a gentleman come up directly following the service, uh, and this person I'd had enough interaction with to know that uh, this, it could be like, you know, guns ablazing, like we're ready to go. What are we going to do? Are we going to prosecute? All these types of things. And the person came up to me and with an incredibly tender spirit just said, and how is she doing? And genuinely wanted to know how this individual was doing and if she was going to be okay and what we were doing as a church community to care for and support this individual. And again, a, a small thing, but it really captures the essence of uh, the type of people that call this family their family. To this individual's credit, she has paid faithfully anywhere from the tune of $600 to $800 a month since this time for restitution. And it's a pretty incredible testament to this individual saying, hey, I did something that was wrong that I'm not proud of, and I'm going to make this thing right. And it's a pretty incredible story. Um, not all of our family conversations have been negative, have right. been painful. Some have been incredibly exciting. Some have been... Um, some have uh, really kind of called our community in to new responsibilities. Um, this building will be an example. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I can remember standing up here on stage in 2018, just about a year after uh, moving into this space, about six months after acknowledging that we'd had an uh, incredible amount of money embezzled from the church. Uh, and... Um, kind of standing up here and saying, hey, family, here's something that we need to address. Here's something that we need to talk about. Previously, for the uh, eight, you know, ten years previous to that, New Community had been known as a very young church. We were primarily populated by college-age people or very young people, 20 to 25. As young people do, they find each other attractive they fall in love, they get married, they start having kids. This is all stuff that we know, right? But our population, our demographic was changing. And rather than being filled or our pews filled, our chairs filled with college-age students, it started to be young families. And our elders began to recognize, oh my gosh, we have a ton of kids in kids' community. And eventually those kids are going to grow up into teenagers. And currently, we don't really have anything in place to care for and minister to and love our youth, our, you know, fifth, sixth, all the way through 12th grade students in our community. And if we're really going to call ourselves a church family that cares for one another, then we need to have something specific for this very, very unique time in life. And so I stood up here and said, community, here's where we're at. We really feel like we need to hire a full-time or a part-time youth pastor. 
somebody that's going to give attention and resources and time to the youth and the growing youth in our population. And I invited people in to pledge $30,000 to say, let's get this person on staff. And it was one of those moments where you have a really honest, transparent conversation, and then people met the call. It was pretty incredible, and uh, we were able to fund this position, and even though conventional wisdom would tell you that you certainly don't do something like this directly after taking on a building like this, and then also directly after finding out that you'd been embezzled by a ton of money, this is not the way, the typical way you go about it, but we felt like God is moving in this way, and let's invite our community to be a part of it. The funds were raised, and uh, although it's uh, kind of been maybe a, a bit of a, a turbulent start in terms of our youth pastor coming on, it feels like we're now totally cruising with Joseph at the helm, flying the plane, and our kids are being cared for and ministered to and discipled in some pretty profound ways. The common theme amongst all of these is that none of these conversations happen in isolation. None of these things are just our staff, our elders talking, and then making unilateral decisions and hoping people follow, the, follow us. It's always, always, always in community. Yeah. And at the center of community, there's a value that we talk about often here, which is communal discernment. Those of you not familiar with that particular term, it's a process when an individual, or better yet, a community, uh, seeks to listen and discern what the Spirit might be saying to the community. Uh, so it's a decision-making process where we seek the presence and the wisdom and the compassion of the Spirit. It's a process that allows time. Um, it is maybe not the quickest or the smoothest or the uh, most efficient process, but it is one where through deep prayer, through a lot of conversation, through relationship, we allow the Spirit to dwell in a unique way in spaces that allow for us to hear and to listen and to learn. And, and often out of that process, there is this discernment that it's very clear that God is asking us to do something or be something as a community. And the interesting thing about this idea of communal discernment it is, is that it has happened a lot throughout the history of the church, not just new community, but the church universal. So when they first decided what disciple would replace Judas, it was communal discernment that solved that. When they tried to figure out if they needed to continue after the resurrection to abide by the law of Sabbath and the Old Testament law, it was communal discernment that decided that. When uh, they were really starting to divide as a church between those who felt like they had to live into the law of circumcision still or the freedom to not be, it was in that moment that they allowed communal discernment to take place. And you see it again, the church has continued to do that through divorce, through remarriage, through the gifts of the Spirit etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and new community is definitely not um, immune to that time where we really need to be a community that listens, that learns collectively, and that discerns what the Spirit might be saying, and so we've had some profound moments over these last 14 years of that event. We'll share a couple. I'll start. Uh, the first one is this idea of bivocationalism. Now, I'm not actually sure there was ever an official moment that this was voted upon, but I do know that hours and hours of conversation and corporate prayer have been given to this decision, and it, it still is one of the most deeply held values that we have as a staff, and it's this idea of bivocationalism, or two vocations, three vocations. <clears throat> this value and the way that it plays out for us is not an attempt to capture greater incomes personally, but it's a belief in the need for disciples of Jesus to operate 
not only within the walls of a church, but in nonprofits and in education and in healthcare and in the marketplace. And uh, it's this idea that we are employed here at New Community, but we are also employed in other arenas in our world. And oftentimes those other places come out of a place of value and a place of passion and a place of calling. Certainly it creates a bit more complexity, but the trade-off really is the ability to pursue those things that we're passionate about and to increase the scope of where New Community is working within the city. It actually becomes a more holistic expression of vocation, allowing us to more fully live into the ways that God has created us to be. You want to go to women? Yeah. Uh, so another one that was uh, really profound in the history of New Community. Uh, New Community always operated um, pretty much from the beginning um, with a perspective that women were important in the church, but over its 18 years of existence up to the time, uh, New Community never acknowledged the full gifting and voice of women in the church. And so around 2007, 2008, we went to the elders with the deep conviction that we were leading the church in a way that needed a desperate change. And so New Community had operated, like I said, from a theological position that elders or pastors were only men and that uh, God had appointed men to lead. And it was that short-sightedness that we admitted in 2008 and began to live into a more full and authentic expression of God's church by inviting women to lead at all levels of the church. So throughout history, if we look at the church, it is women who have led and developed and grown the church in profound ways, but we were not leaning into that in full display. And so shortly after that decision, it wasn't long uh, after that that Rochelle Riling was invited to come on staff as a connections pastor. A year or two later, uh, Michelle Estelle, who's still on the elder team, um, stepped into the role of elder in our community. And then uh, Julie Jones shifted at one point from being on staff as one of the children's directors to being a pastor overseeing engagement and connections and small groups. Uh, and then a few years ago, about five, six years ago, Hope Prince uh, joined the elder team and has since stepped down uh, to move to California. And uh, at that time, Jerusha came on, and then obviously this morning talking about her new role on staff as pastor of spiritual formation. And so since 2008, uh, really as a community, we have been blessed with the incredible leadership and gifting of women in the church. Uh, and again, throughout the history desiring to lean into that, but I think in its fullest and most inclusive way over these last uh, few years. Yeah. Uh, another point uh, that we think has really marked our history is this place that you sit in right now, this building. It was never our goal or our intention to own anything outright, uh, but we knew when we were in our old space that uh, our lease rate that we were paying was uh, incredibly high and was potentially not the best way for us to steward the resources that God had given. It was a great space and in a lot of ways um, uh, was kind of perfect for where we were at, but again, writing that check every month, we felt like, could we do something bigger with, uh, with this money, something that honors the Lord more with this money. And so I can remember getting a call from John Leland. He's a, uh, a local real estate agent, and I had reached out to him previous, uh, actually years previous, and said, hey, keep your ears open. If there's a, a cheaper place to rent that has all these things that we need in terms of corporate meeting space and kids' spaces and all these things, 
give me a call, and, uh, and we'd at least like to entertain it. And we'd walked through a number of spaces in Spokane, always wanting to be downtown, um, because of that's where we, we really feel God has called us. But we hadn't heard from him for a number of months, maybe even potentially a year. And John called me out of the blue, and he said, hey, uh, I got a new client, and uh, they're looking to sell their church building downtown, 3rd and Howard. And I thought for a minute, I'm like, man, is that that haunted church right downtown that you can see from the freeway? Uh, and here we are. Yeah. Certainly it was. And so, um, so I said, well, John, first of all, let's, let's even talk about it. What are they asking for? And he said, 1.2. And I said, cool. Tell them we're not interested at all. <clears throat> but uh, I called Russ um, and said, hey, I don't know, you know, is it worth just walking through? And maybe, maybe they'd be open to us leasing a, a portion of it, and, and we could move, uh, you know, more intentionally downtown. Yeah, so, so we walked through, and as we walked through, uh, although uh, this is never what we imagined, we begin to feel this sense of, oh, geez, I think God is doing something, <laughs> and this could mean a lot of work for us, but let's just keep asking questions. Let's keep the conversation going. And so we reached back out to John uh, and said, hey, uh, we've, we've prayed through this, we've discerned, we've talked it, we, we've done everything we need to, and we love the space. They're not open to leasing. They need to uh, sell the building. There's no way that we can meet uh, their, uh, their listed price of 1.2, but here's what we can do. We could offer $650,000, 50%, and we're all in. And we felt like at this moment, let's just, let's throw a Hail Mary and let's just hope that it's not received with incredible disrespect from this community of people trying to sell this building. And we threw it out there and it was like two weeks of just total silence. I think it was a month. It, it was a long time. And we had just kind of said, okay, they probably are pretty frustrated at the way that we treated this whole situation and we may need to send a, a letter at some point acknowledging the way we did it. And then again, out of the blue, they called us and they said, uh, we're ready to sell for 650. Uh, and here's our one caveat is that you allow Shalom, which is uh, the ministry that operates out of the basement, which they had started in the 80s, that you allow Shalom to continue to minister out of the space. And we said, that's absolutely what we would want to have happen, right? We want to be a part of this. And so we said, okay, when we threw out 650, we didn't actually think we could even come up with that money. So again, disrespect. <laughs> let's go to our people and let's see what God is doing. And so uh, we came to the community and we told this crazy story and we said, uh, we're going to allow the spirit to speak to us if we can raise $100,000 uh, from our community, which at that point, Russ and I, not that we don't have any faith, but we have yeah. a mustard seed of mustard, faith, very yeah, small. Yeah, uh -huh. We're like, there's probably no way. So we're already trying to think, how are we going to tell these people that they came down 50% on their listed price, and now we can't even tell them we're willing to do that. We said, if we can raise uh, $100,000, we're going to move forward. We really feel like that would be the spirit speaking in to this situation. We threw it out there. We gave people a couple of weeks, and it was, uh, I remember it was like three days before our kind of timeline that we put on it. Russ called me, and I don't know the exact number. I believe it's... It was like almost 250 <laughs> Something yeah. absolutely bonkers. Yeah, stupid. We had never raised money like this before. No. We now have realized we are incredible fundraisers. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. Um, Russ called me, and again, kind of in one of those moments, like, hey, are you seated? Because 
we've got $250,000 in the bank right now for this thing. And so um, we were able to actually move into this space and be a part of like the absolute center of downtown, as many of you know, as you walk into this building. And uh, all along the way, God's faithfulness, God's grace led us into this place. But it wasn't just a decision that we made or a decision that our leaders made. It was a decision that we said, family, do we think that this is the next step for us? And our family resoundingly said, yes, and we're behind you, and we support you, and we are with you in this. Yeah, and uh, honestly, it, uh, again, a miracle, and it's something that uh, each week that we're in this space, we say, yes, God is continuing to affirm that. Even when this morning, uh, Kevin spent probably 20 minutes shoveling cereal off the front uh, steps or like cleaning up stuff along the road. That's exactly why we're here. That's what we need to be about. I want to give us one final one before we close. Um, and obviously, we're giving you such a quick snapshot. Each of these items we've been talking about, we could probably talk for an hour on each one. You probably have hundreds of questions, especially if you haven't been a part of this community for a long time. But one of the uh, more challenging and, um, it, yeah, most profound maybe movements over the last little while uh, was a shift to move from being a community that included some people to be a, a community of extravagant welcome. And um, we embarked on what turned out to be a five-year communal discernment process as a group of elders in January of uh, 2016. Uh, we asked the elders to begin to pray about what it is that New Community was called to do with our friends in the LGBTQ community. And uh, we went about six months of praying about it, and then we uh, sat down in backyard, actually our yard, June 26th of 2016. And um, we had some barbecue, then we had some conversation, and in full transparency, it was a great conversation, it was a hard conversation, it was a discouraging conversation, and it was a disastrous conversation all at the same time. It was um, very, very challenging. And we went through years of prayer, conversations, readings, studies, um, fasting, wisdom seeking. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, but that summary of five years moved us to a place where um, we felt it was time as a group of leaders to ask the community to discern this, that it shouldn't just be a group of elders and staff kind of wrestling with it, but we collectively should wrestle with it. Um, and so we brought it to the community as a whole, and we did it through a series called the Imago Day series. And um, again, in full transparency, I was incredibly nervous about that moment or about that month. Um, in part because of the five years of conversations before it, but also in part because anytime you even ask the question in most uh, church, churches throughout um, the Western culture, it is tantamount to heresy. It's like you went somewhere you're not supposed to go to even ask the question. And uh, in typical Newcom fashion, the community entered into that discernment process with exceptional wisdom, with patience, and with love for one another. And uh, the result, fast-forwarding, obviously, was that the community moved to welcome full participation of the LGBTQ community into the life and in the leadership of the church. 
uh, to be a community of extravagant welcome. And even in that process, we developed as a community as a whole a bit of a welcome statement. I want to read that for us. Uh, it says this, that Newcom is a place where all are welcome, seriously, everyone. Whatever your age, race, culture, gender, marital status, sexual orientation, religious tradition, different abilities, you are welcome. Whether you have money or not, whether you have a degree or not, whether you have a home or not, whether you have a strong faith or no faith, or perhaps a million questions about faith, you are welcome. You are welcome here because you are a child of God, worthy of God's love and grace. Nothing you have felt, have done, or not done, or will do, and nothing you believe can change that. Newcom is committed to being a thoroughly loving community of faith centered in the good news of Jesus Christ, and we welcome all to full participation in the life of the church and encourage people of all different backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives to come and seek Christ together. And just because, yeah. And just because we've arrived at these four places uh, regarding communal discernment does not mean that we've arrived. I think that's important to say. Uh, for one, it's important to say because we are still always to be people who are reforming, to be growing, to be learning, to asking more questions. Also, it's important to know that we haven't arrived because we continue to make mistakes as people. We continue to stumble our way forward as a community into all of these things. And what you just got was a snapshot of the last 14 years. And again, like I said, it was just like skipping a stone across water where we barely were able to dive into some of these more profound moments in the life of the church. But I want you to catch this. If you, like, you can miss all the rest of it, but don't miss this. That it is because of God's grace and faithfulness that we are a community that we are. Right? There is no way in 14 years that I know of any church, any of my friends anywhere, I do not know of a church that has gone through what we just listed and yet is excited about the next 15. Is excited about what God's doing in our city and what he's continuing to do in our community. And so I think it's important to, to recognize it is the overwhelming faithfulness of God. I also think it's important to acknowledge that this is not just our story. This is our collective story. We're just able to be up here and to communicate about it, but it is your lived experience. It is our lived experience. And while you may not have lived every moment of that experience, that is the community that you are a part of, and that is the community that you hopefully call home. And I want us to end by just coming back to this idea that it is all about Jesus and it is all about his faithfulness. And Kevin's going to close our time with a benediction. Let's stand. I'm going to go back to the verse we began with, uh, Lamentations 3. I'm going to read 21, 22, and 23 as a benediction this morning. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God bless you, family. We love you, and we'll see you next week.